Hello and welcome to Atlantic Conversations. I'm Fanula Sweeney. The Atlantic Fellowship Programme works with a diverse community of leaders around the world with a common commitment to fairer, healthier, more inclusive societies. Through its seven programmes focused on equity and healthcare, socio-economic equity and racial equity, the Atlantic Fellowships offer committed leaders from around the world an opportunity to gain new perspectives and new colleagues while strengthening their confidence in their work for change. In each podcast, I'll be speaking to an Atlantic Fellow about their work and ambitions for a more just world. For this series, I travel to Bangkok to meet up with some of the first Atlantic Fellows from the Equity in Brain Health and Health Equity Southeast Asia programmes. Today, I'm joined by Eliseus Karajorju, an Atlantic Fellow for Equity in Brain Health at the Global Brain Health Institute, University of California, San Francisco. Eliseus is a sleep and behavioural neurologist. I asked him what this involved. I'm trained to evaluate and treat patients who have sleep problems, but also patients that have dementia or cognitive impairment deficits. I was a graduate of medical school in Greece. I came to the United States. I got my PhD in neurology and psychiatry, focusing on cognitive impairment in people that have different neurological diseases, including Alzheimer's disease and study the brainwaves of people with cognitive impairment. That led me gradually to fellowships on behavioral neurology, which studies dementia, but also sleep medicine. My interest is on studying that interaction between sleep disorders and dementia. What is the connection? The original research that we know for many years shows that as our brain starts to have different diseases, degenerative diseases including like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease and so forth, different sleep disorders emerge later in life. Or if somebody has a certain acute event like a stroke, for example, those conditions can affect our sleep in different ways. However, there is more recent research that indicates that sleep disruption, especially sleep deprivation, can add to cognitive impairment, both to the level of what we call synaptic potentiation overnight sleep-mediated memory consolidation, which means how are we able to remember from the previous day things in the next day. So someone with no cognitive impairment doesn't get much sleep or has a sleep disorder, that has an impact on how they function the next day. Think of yourself where you went sleep deprived for days and then searching for words more than you usually would. That's part of how the brain tries to balance that sleep deprivation. However, some recent studies not only show that there's a relation between deprived sleep or sleep disruption and impaired cognition on a functional level, but there's actually evidence of acceleration of neurodegenerative processes, especially with relation to amyloid deposition. Amyloid being one of the key proteins that relate to Alzheimer's disease. And it's the buildup of amyloid protein that contributes to cognitive impairment. Yes, in Alzheimer's disease specifically. The other protein being tau. The buildup as a relationship to the sleep disorder itself, there's two theories. One is that during sleep, we're able to clear certain toxic substances or things that accumulate normally in our brain. Amyloid being a protein that we do need. At very small concentrations, amyloid facilitates synaptic transmission, meaning transmission of information between different parts of the brain. However, if you don't clear it, it's like having a house full of garbage. And it can be cleared during sleep? It is cleared during sleep. That's one theory as to how sleep helps in decreasing amyloid aggregation. The other theory is that 
amyloid is produced more depending on the level of activity of our neurons. So the more you're awake, certain areas of the brain are more active. Those areas seem to accumulate more amyloid. So sleep, by decreasing the level of activity of those areas, helps produce less amyloid in the brain. So if one is cognitively impaired, mm. one has difficulty sleeping. The majority of conditions that relate to cognitive impairment do relate to a sleep problem. We generally think in behavioral neurology on two levels. The syndrome, which is a type of difficulty you have with cognition, and what's going on in the brain. There are different types of cognitive deficits. You can be an amnestic person, meaning that you forget. Mm. You may have uh, language problems, aphasia problems, word finding difficulties. There are different presentations or phenotypes, as we call them. There's also an underlying process in the brain. Those conditions that we observe could be caused by a degenerative process like Alzheimer's disease, Lewy body dementia, progressive supranuclear palsy, frontotemporal lobar degeneration, or by strokes, certain types of infections or autoimmune diseases and so forth. It seems that depending on the underlying pathology and which parts of the brain it affects, it may or it may not affect sleep centers and sleep regulating centers. The most common degenerative diseases, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, Lewy body dementia, and also disease like progressive supranuclear palsy, which is a type of tauopathy, they all seem to have quite prevalent sleep problems. And they have different features of their sleep problems. What we know, for example, from work we've done at UCSF is that patients that have progressive supranuclear palsy, they have more insomnia people that have Parkinson's disease or Lewy body dementia, they tend to transition more easily into sleep. And Alzheimer's disease patients tend to be in a twilight zone, never fully awake and never into that deep sleep. Then there are some unique sleep disorders that present in degenerative disease like Lewy body dementia or Parkinson's disease patients called REM behavior disorder where they act out their dreams. Not just sleep talk or sleep walk, but actually fight in their sleep or choke their partners or injure themselves falling out of bed. And those can be decades before the actual onset of Parkinson's disease or Lewy body dementia. This is fascinating. My understanding is you're involved in two projects to help people with cognitive impairment sleep, one involving medication and one involving cognitive behavioral therapy. Those are two of the most active programs that are ongoing currently. The specific project in Greece has to do with cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. This is psychotherapy treatment. It's the most effective treatment in both young and old who are not cognitively impaired and have insomnia. The theory behind applying it in patients that have mild cognitive impairment in this case is that if we are able to promote better sleep, would we be able to delay cognitive decline. Research that could prove pivotal to the prevention of the development of dementia. Correct. As far as the project in Greece goes, there's a plethora of patients willing to participate in research who do not have other avenues of getting good quality care at that specialized level. So this affords an opportunity? Yes. There aren't as many specialists in Greece currently, but through GBHI, we are training quite a few people. We already have four Greek fellows that have completed the program. Two of them are full-time back in Greece, and two more, myself included, have projects in collaboration with Greece. 
the goal is to build the knowledge base of individuals, also the larger community on what dementia is and what cognitive impairment is, but also build knowledge on treatment. The other project about improving sleep and delaying cognitive decline, that has to do with pharmaceutical treatments. Pharmaceutical treatments available for improving sleep in their majority have downsides in patients with cognitive impairment in that they are hypnotics in their majority that facilitate sleep induction or sleep maintenance, but they do have carryover side effects the following day meaning that people are still performing slower as far as their cognitive processing. They're not as efficient. There are, however, two medications at this point that have been shown to benefit patients with mild cognitive impairment or a mild dementia as far as their sleep goes without cognitive deficits the following day. But we don't know if they can help long-term in not only improving sleep, but also delaying cognitive decline. One of the two medications is called trazodone. This is a medication we've used for years. It's originally marketed for depression at high doses, but at low doses is a hypnotic. It's not just a hypnotic in the sense that people sleep longer. It's a hypnotic that promotes slow-wave sleep in young and older people. That slow-wave sleep is the critical period that seems to facilitate both episodic memory consolidation, which is the type of memory that has to do with recently acquired experiences. What did you eat yesterday? Do you remember I told you that we have to go to the doctor's appointment tomorrow and all that stuff? Also, it is related with the clearance or the decreased production of amyloid. And what we saw is that people that were taking trazodone on average about three to four years, whether they were having mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's disease, or even if they were non-cognitively impaired otherwise, those people matched for people that were not taking trazodone over that similar period of time had a decreased progression of cognitive decline. The ones that were not taking the trazodone overall had about two and a half times faster decline compared to the ones that were taking trazodone. What impact does this research have? First of all, because it is a retrospective study, there are a lot of questions. For example, if you are taking a certain medication that helps with your sleep, maybe you also have a better physician that treats you in a more holistic way, or you're taking better care of yourself. So is it truly the medication? Because all retrospective studies can do are associations. One interesting association, however, that we did find is that the people that truly benefited were the ones that had a baseline problem with their sleep, especially if it improved over time. So it seems that the mediating effect was improvement via sleep. Before heading on with a prospective study where you can control other parameters, we want to get a better understanding if this is an effect that exists in other cohorts. So we have recently tapped on the study of osteoporotic fractures. It's a large epidemiological study with thousands of patients, and they do ask if people were taking trazodone. The question is, would that study show similar results Hopefully within the next month at the most, we'll have some preliminary results. What is it like commuting between San Francisco and Greece? From a professional standpoint, 
There is a big difference between UCSF and the Bay Area, where you have the top centers really in the world as far as behavioral neurology and sleep, and Greece, where you have a lot of scientists or clinicians that are passionate about what they do, but they lack the resources or the knowledge. Every year for 10 years now, I've been giving talks and workshops on dementia, general education about cognitive impairment, and more recently on sleep. This is done through the Neurological Institute of Athens, where I'm a scientific advisor. At the Bay Area, I receive all the latest knowledge. Back home, people thirst for it. And they actually put it to practice. What has the Atlantic Fellowship for Equity and Brain Health given you? First of all, it allowed me to network with people, not just in my field. One of the very important things is that we have an affinity group on sleep and cognition. And that's with people from all around the world who are all Atlantic fellows. Some have graduated and some are current fellows. And we're already publishing papers on the field. It's also a positive approach in how to do research on a global scale. It brings up ideas on what needs to be done to promote equity. It also allows me personally to think of things that I never did think before as how I can contribute. For example, something I hope one day I'll be able to make a difference is policy change. I've already talked with Greek policy stakeholders, and even though a lot of them are eager to make changes, there's a lot of hurdles along the way. Hopefully one day I'll learn how to navigate that realm too. This is a conversation clearly to be continued. Sure. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And that was Eliseus Karagiorgiou. Atlantic Fellow for Equity and Brain Health at the Global Brain Health Institute, University of California, San Francisco. For more information, you can visit www.atlanticfellows.org. I'm Fanula Sweeney, and you've been listening to the Atlantic Conversations podcast.